So, guys, um, we're here to talk about uh, Guillermo del Toro's uh, The Devil's Backbone, which you did a book about, and it's coming out soon. So, I'm really looking forward to this. I'm uh, I'm so happy that you guys made the time to talk about this on, on the podcast. Um, Matt, we talked previously about your Oliver Stone book, which was, um, man, just exhaustive and, and just a, a beautiful uh, 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 coffee table book that kind of just was everything about the man's uh, uh, personality as well as his movies. And um, I'm so excited to dig into this because it's so it's so focused. It's on one um, movie of uh, Del Toro's, but specifically, I wanted to kind of talk about how the book came together. And since I've never talked to you before, Simon, I kind of wanted to to start there. How you knew Matt and how you got involved with the project. Um, I think I first met Matt uh, through Facebook. Actually, we both actually used to write for the New York press and i sent him a facebook friend request years ago and i was uh like hey i write for new york press too uh how's it going and then like we are actually first- yeah, actually that's actually what he sounded like <laughs> through facebook yeah no that's that really quite impressive that's how you read it <laughs> that was the, that was the font and i wrote back and i was like hey, what's up? <laughs> hey! but i think i think the first time we actually met was like when matt was uh, trying to get rid of a bunch of laser discs. One of the <laughs> one of the thirty eight times that I've moved since I've lived in New York City. And like at the time, I didn't even have a working laser disc player, but I was like, I'll take those. <laughs> I valiantly volunteer to take the laser discs. And uh, have you ever watched any of them? Yeah. Okay. Good. Were some of them criteria? <laughs> well, I just wonder because I buy I buy stuff all the time, and then I'm like, what's that? No, I watched Gone with the Wind one Christmas. I watched Face Off. I watched a couple of those. Uh, but anyway, so uh, to answer your other question, uh, what was the second part about the? So, so yeah, this this book is what we're we're really talking about today. I wanted to know because it, to, just to give some context, I, I know that Matt's done some collaboration with Seppenwall and a couple other people, I'm sure. Um, but for these books, for the most part, it feels like you know it's Matt on his own, um, wow. maybe with a, a, a team behind. But this is another co- collaboration. I kind of wanted to know how you came into the mix. Um. I I will speak to my end of it. I know that Matt uh, wanted a collaborator to work with him on this project uh, because it was a, a big undertaking in a short amount of time. Right. And I uh, we've been working together on a couple of horror theme pieces because we're building up to uh, writing a big ambitious history of gore on film book. Nice. And um, this was seemed like a good way to kind of continue to show people that we we were working together and it was seemed like a good an intuitive kind of project for us to do uh, especially since we both uh pride ourselves on our interviews so i um matt focused on the the interview with guillermo del toro Mm -hmm. and i did uh the majority of the ancillary interviews something like 10 to 12 secondary interviews for the book and uh, it was in a very short amount of time, you know, I rewatched the movie several times, but we kind of uh, did our own things and then we co- put it all together, co-edited it, uh, arranged it and uh, basically pulled our talents so that it, it, it kind of formed a coherent kind of story. Yeah, and the editing, the editing phase of it was uh, fairly involved because we had to, you know, when you make a book like this. If you're doing it right, 
you're thinking about the interplay of text and image. Right. And you're thinking like how many, you know, the first question you ask is how many pages do we have and how big are the pages mm-hmm. and, and uh, how big can the pictures be before we lose resolution, depending right. on what sort of image it is and just basic technical questions like that. So, you know, phase one was editing through this mountain of interviews. Like I interviewed Guillermo for three straight days in Toronto wow. and Simon conducted um, short separate interviews with um, how many people was it? It was ten to twelve. I don't know. Like, yeah, yeah, and um, and then but then once we had that, we had to a- edit those down, uh, edit the sidebar interviews down, and also that long ass interview with Guillermo, which you know if it was, I think it was probably sixteen, seventeen hours of of, of audio, wow. uh, had to be edited down, but also chronologically arranged because there are times in the course of a conversation where like on Friday we talked about some aspect of the sets and on Saturday and Sunday we also talked about it right and, and like all of those things so Simon and I had to arrange uh you know we we use what I call a bin system where we just create a bunch of bins and label them it was funny because if you look at the if you look at the labels on the bins that we created it's like poem it's like ghosts <laughs> insects kidnapping <laughs> Uh, the desert, brown, orange, you know, like that kind of thing. Right. And it's like every time there was a meaningful th- part where Guillermo talked about one of these particular key things, we dropped it in the bin, and then and then we sort of Frankenstein the entire thing together. Right. The fascinating thing to me is always kind of the, the filmmakers kind of um, that love the post-production phase and the editing phase. And I, I kind of attribute that. I kind of uh, see the analogy here because the book is coming together kind of in a visual sense, uh, how it's laid out. Um, and like you said, with the, uh, the pictures, but also kind of editing a, a, a narrative or like the the stream of consciousness that is the the interviews interspersed throughout it so i can understand like being so excited to see that come together to make the product that way yes um, and in fact I, I i've actually said on many occasions you know when i do interviews about these these books these particular kinds of film and tv books that i'm involved with right. um Basically, they are movies that happen to be in the form of books, right. and they're and they're like documentary portraits of a movie or a filmmaker, right. and that's why you know each of them has a slightly different look or feel because it's kind of trying to take on the characteristics of whoever the filmmaker is. Right. And in the case of this book, uh, Insight Editions published this book. Usually, I work for Abrams or um, Grand Central. Mm-hmm. And they have a, di- a different production process. And they've also done a couple of books with Guillermo, so they have a particular way of doing things. So it's a bit more like for me, I guess, like as opposed to um, being an auteur who has a budget and can kind of do his own mm-hmm. thing versus being like, this is Game of Thrones and I'm I'm a director who's right. been brought in for one episode. Right. Of, uh, you know, like there's a, there's a particular way that Insight does things that's not necessarily my way. However, I will say they gave me and Simon an incredible amount of latitude considering that they have a way that they do things. That's uh, an example of that, I would say, is the sidebars. I got to suggest the way that the they would be structured. I figured since Matt's uh, interview with Guillermo would be uh, a Q&A format, I thought the idea of just cutting out my questions and making each of my interviews just a straight statement almost of what it was like for each individual contributor, uh, I thought that would be visually a little easier on the eye and more, more fun to read. And uh, I think it worked out great because like Matt was saying, it, it kind of just, it gives it a different kind of style. It makes it so that like, you're not just reading like, 
here's one thing and here's more of that thing except different. Right. And right. it's just, it's, I think, I think it worked out pretty great. How do you how do you focus on on trying to limit that redundancy, right? You know whether it's going to be uh, similar topics or or covering the same perspective from someone else. You know it's it's hard to get get at. I'm sure. Yeah, that was that was one of the big challenges in this because um, on one hand we had the advantage in layout of being able to like I always you know we we sort of thought of this as the main story if this were a movie. The main character in the movie is Guillermo del Toro. Right. He's the star of the he's the star of this little movie that we're making on the on the page. But there are supporting characters and the supporting characters show up as like little vignettes uh. as he's moving through the story. So Guillermo is talking about the production design and he goes on for a couple of pages in the interview with me. And then at a certain point, the sidebar comes in and then we go back to Guillermo as he's segueing into a new topic. Mm-hmm. Right. And and that's what and so we we sort of did it that way. But that said, there were po- there were points where it's like Guillermo is telling a particular story, and one of the people in Simon's sidebars is telling the same story. Right. And it's a case we're like, gee, we now we got to decide <laughs> better. Yeah. <laughs> what was um? Th- are these all new interviews? Is there anything old? No, all new. All new. That's fantastic. And I guess the the real question, when I heard about this, what's exciting is especially the people who are psycho Del Toro fans like I am, you know, cinephiles that just, you know, uh, uh, appreciate everything that he's put out from when he was doing this this stuff that was kind of an international Mexican filmmaker to now where he's, you know, uh, got the ability to do very large scale productions and kind of see his uh, imagination flourish in ways that maybe it never did before. But I guess the question for me when I heard that you guys were doing this book is why specifically uh, The Devil's Backbone? It is kind of a mile marker in his his, uh, career, isn't it? I think it is. It's a breakthrough film for him. Uh I interviewed Guillermo... uh, Every time I tell a story like this, I you know I feel like I'm Methuselah. But I but I interviewed Guillermo when he was on a press tour for his first film, Kronos, mm-hmm. tw- uh, 25 years ago, something like that. And um, I was really struck by him. You know, he was of course. You know, we were both a lot younger. Um, but I was struck by how what an incredibly wide range of knowledge he had about the genre of horror, not just in the U.S. but you know, obviously Mexico. Uh, and Spain, but internationally, like he t- he was talking about, I remember he was talking about Japanese horror, which I didn't really know much about at the time. And he was giving me a list of all these movies that I simply had to see, you know, right. and, um, but it was only when I, then I saw mimic. And of course, Guillermo now considers that a disaster. You know, he's one of the many people who got, uh, ground up in the, in the Miramax, uh, meat grinder right. in the nineties. Um, but the, and I thought like, wow, what a promising filmmaker! It's too bad about Mimic, and I and I thought like maybe he wasn't gonna crawl out from under that. But then he made The Devil's Backbone, and I remember seeing that it was in uh, October or November of two thousand one, right after the nine eleven attacks, right. and it really seemed to capture the mood of the time. And we talk about that in the book. And I said, you know, that was one of the things that struck me. Like, I think it's a great film. I think it's you know, in my opinion, his best film overall mm-hmm. although he's made three or four others that i think are in the same weight class and uh and i said that it captured something about that particular time and of course it was made a year earlier so there's no way he could have known but there's something about the mood of it and the look of it that really takes me back to that time and and also just the way that 
there's a sense of dread. There's a sense of dread and menace throughout the entire thing. Um, but, you know, I don't know exactly why they approached me about to do this particular film. I don't know. I mean, I think maybe I talk about it constantly on Twitter mm-hmm. to the where people want to unfollow me. Maybe that was <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but you know, but then like, but the time frame was so extreme because a book like this, you know, I'm sort of giving away trade secrets here, but I always uh, tell people about these books, like book, book publishing is a 19th century at best industry. Right. We're in the 21st century and people don't understand that. Like I have people come up to me all the time and say like, Hey, you know, uh, next year is the 25th anniversary of such and such a film. You should do a book. And I'm like, well, that's a great idea, but I should have gotten started three years ago. Exactly, right. Because it just takes forever. Like the the actual physical production process where they're just making the physical object that is the book takes months. Right. And 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 generally speaking, like to make one of these coffee table books uh, or heavily illustrated books of criticism that I'm known for takes uh, two years. It take, like you got to get the ball rolling a minimum two years out if you want to make a decent book. Usually more. Like the for- Stone book was in production for like six years. Wow. The original Wes Anderson collection for four, right, and so on. Break and this that, break that down for me. Why? Why so long? It's um, because you're dealing with things. You're dealing with things that have to be done and things that have to be made, like things that have to be measured. It's like right. when you make a book, you're you're making. It's not like making a film now in the digital age where it's all stored and it's all ones and zeros. Mm-hmm. Like. Production process in a book is ones and zeros, but ultimately you are making a physical object. It's like you're making – it's like let's build a redwood deck on the back of this house. And the first question is what kind of terrain is there? What kind of wood are we going to have to use? How big is the deck? What's the shape of the deck? What kind of waterproofing are we going to use? Are there particular building codes that have to be observed? You're making an actual thing, this Mm -hmm. book, that's going to be held in people's hands. And every decision that you make dictates uh, – it places certain parameters on the content. Right. And, and uh, so the, just the planning of it is, is difficult. And, um, and you know, I'll give you one example. Like I'm working on the Sopranos book with Alan Sepinwall, which is going to be out in, in January of 2019. 20, uh, 19, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the 20th anniversary uh, of the Sopranos debut. And we have to turn it in in January 2018. Oh, so we're finishing it right now. And the first question we asked when we got a green light to do the book is how many pages do we have? How many <laughs> how many words are on a page? And then we had to divide by the number of episodes. And it's like this is the maximum length of the recaps. And then we have to leave room for the interviews and the wow. supplemental material. And if we put illustrations on the page, how big are they? Well, that takes 300 words out of this one, 400 words out of that one or whatever. That's, it's a mathematical almost. Like how can you know that before you even get to you know, finishing interviews and being able to shape something? How do you even know that? Well, you know, if you work with a publisher that is experienced with these sorts of books, they, they know this stuff. Uh-huh. You know, they know this stuff. And, and, and it just becomes a matter of making a decision. Just like when you're a filmmaker, it's like – are we shooting this in one eight five or two three five? Is it black and white or is it in color? Are we shooting on location or on a soundstage? Like right. those those sorts of decisions dictate what you end up putting into the movie, and it's the same thing with the book. But in the case of this book, we from the time that we got the green light was January of this year, and Simon and I commenced doing interviews and research in uh, early February, uh-huh. and the entire book was turned in when it was like March My something April or. March, yeah. yeah, it was like two months maximum from start to finish wow. of when 
turn in the finished manuscript. So it was nuts. And Simon was over at my house a lot of evenings and we're like eating takeout food. It's like a scene out of a law movie where we're getting ready for the big trial. You know, like they yeah. got any cow chicken, you know? <laughs> uh, litigate that Guillermo del Toro. <laughs> Take it to the mat. But I will say that it's 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 uh, satisfying. I love, ma- I love making books. I love working on books and I love... Uh, you know, the fact that they're not all the same book and you got to think about like, you know, um, I started out as a visual artist in high school and I studied painting and printmaking and sculpture and stuff. And the first thing you learn when you're a visual artist is that the material makes a lot of decisions for you. Right. And there are certain things you can do with oil paint that you can't do with watercolor. And they're and if you're making a sculpture, if it's a metal sculpture welded together you know, pieces of copper wire, that's a different process than working in marble or clay. Right. You know, and, and, uh, that's the same thing with a book and like, you know, the, uh, uh, the Oliver Stone book is this like six pound monstrosity, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like 500 pages long. It's gigantic. And it mixes like documentary material about Oliver and his life with right. essays on his films. And those have a different look and feel. But then, like, that's very different than something like The Sopranos book, which we're not sure what that's going to look like yet, but I think it's going to be somewhat modeled. We're sort of torn. It's like Alan and I have actually been arguing about it. Like, do we want it to look more like a therapist's notebook <laughs> or, right. or, or an FBI dossier? Right. And it's like, those are two very different things, and you can't mix them. So we're like, ah, we have to flip a coin. I don't know. So you like the restriction of kind of the medium that you're working in. You don't have it's a fun. problem? No, it's it's a challenge. That's it's fun. Right. It's fun. It's like, you know, like I, I want to do moving forward. I was going to try to start it this year, but, you know, I ran out of time and energy. Um, but I want to put out a, a, a line of books about single films. Right. Because I've done two, I've worked on two books that fit that description, like Devil's Backbone and the Grand Budapest Hotel book, which yeah. is also just about one film. But I want to do it just pure criticism. I don't want to do the sidebars and explanatory material. And if I did those, I would want them to be – the idea is they would be tiny books, tiny paperback books like right. like they would fit in the back pocket of your jeans. Right. That's the idea. So you so people could read them on the subway or the bus or whatever. Right. And those like that's then it's like well they're small, it's paper, there might not even be any illustrations except for line drawings and that's a different set of parameters. I don't think it actually occurred to me that that's that's true. You're kind of appealing to the particular type of reader audience that you're you're making it for. So a coffee table book, it has, you know, this artifact quality to it whereas, you know, something like that would be like someone something that they would read on their commute. You know, it'd be something a little more intimate. Exactly. And in fact, that's a, partly a response to people saying, you know what, I would lo- I would own all of your books if they weren't so funny. <laughs> right. You know, it's like it's really like you're not going to read the Wes Anderson collection or the Oliver Stone experience on the subway. Right. Uh, <laughs> you could. You could make that happen. You could. Well, it's funny because like uh, James Walcott described one of those books as, quote, a lap crusher, <laughs> which is a great, a great phrase. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, wanna, I, I would like to do some books that are not lap, lap crushers that, in fact, are like intimate, little lightweight um, things that are like one step up from a pamphlet. This is you know? this. That would be fantastic. I, I was wondering personally about the the devil's backbone itself was it was there anything during your time with the interviewing or kind of the research of putting it together and this is for both of you that something that that you didn't know 
came to the forefront? You know, what were what was the 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 thing that you took away from the making of the book that that kind of blew your mind? Go first. Uh, yeah, sure. The big thing for me was um, I knew about uh, I knew that Guillermo's father had been kidnapped, um, but I didn't know that it happened that his father was being held hostage and they were, and he and his family were afraid of his death at the time he was writing the screenplay for the devil's backbone. Wow. And he was also writing the screenplay to, um, his adaptation of the count of Monte Cristo, which is one of his favorite novels and which is referenced in the devil's backbone. Mm-hmm. So there's all this stuff is sort of swimming together. So when you watch the devil's backbone, you're really seeing a psychic snapshot of, of, one of the, uh, probably the single most intense period of his of the filmmaker's right, life. Right, right. It's like it's not a direct autobiography, but it is an autobiography of sorts. And just like that, oh god, I can't remember which director said it. Different people take credit for it, but um, every film is a documentary of its own making. Mm-hmm. And I think that's true of this movie as well, even though it's a ghost story. Um, so that was the big one for me, probably. For me, um, I there was this great quote from Matt's part of uh, from the Del Toro interview where Del Toro is talking about how like people don't seem to realize that cinematography is an interdisciplinary art in that like the way a film looks and the way it's shot is dependent on not just the cinematographer but his collaboration, mm-hmm. the costumers, the set designers, the art, uh, the the production designers, the uh, the lighting crew, like, uh, the actors, like, it's just, it's, cinematography is more than just the DP, in other words. Right. And it gave me kind of perspective mm. on, like, when I was doing interviews with, uh, for example, the, uh, the set designer and the, the, and people who just worked on the film behind the scenes and behind the camera, like, it just really made me realize, like, and it informed a little bit of some of the later interviews that I did, uh, some of the questions I, I asked them, which was basically, um, how are you working with this person? What's it like? What kind of days are you working? You know, just like basically trying to paint a picture of what the material reality of working with other people on this film is like. And um, in that sense, it's not trying to talk about these artists as singular creators so much as it is about uh, their work as a collaborative process. Right. It's not like they they have in their heads before they start working one idea and they just progress from start to end with it. It's they have an idea, they talk to other people, it changes, they fix it with their in their own head, they talk to more people, mm-hmm. help them fix that idea again, and it just keeps changing until what you see is on the screen. Right. And uh, I, I found that to, to be pretty, uh, in, it's, a, it's a pretty, it, it seems so matter of fact and kind of like common sense, but um, it, it did, uh, that, that was my big takeaway, I guess. Right. You know, right. that, it, I'll follow on that by saying that was a pretty mind-blowing part of the book for me as well, that part where he talks about that. And, and one thing that it stuck in my head and, in fact, has affected the way I look at movies, it was actually a really new way of looking at movies for me, was he was – I have in my notes from that the uh, days that I spent in Toronto with him – uh, at one point, he was trying to explain what he meant, and he he borrowed my sketchbook, and he started drawing in it, and I have the pages. I'll probably have them framed or something, but 
He drew a picture of a woman in a beautiful old-timey dress. It looked like something out of Crimson Peak. And he said, okay, now here she is in a wide shot. And the doorway is creating a proscenium arch around her. And in that case, like the the production designer and the set builder are also the cinematographer. Right. And he said, now we go to a close-up. And he drew the woman's face in close-up. And he said, now there, now you really can't see the set anymore. And mm -hmm. the proscenium arch is the, is the boundaries of the frame itself. And in this case, the production design is being supplied by the costume designer, mm -hmm. the hairdresser, the makeup artist. Wow, wow, wow. wow. And, and he said, and of course, they're all working together. Like they're all coordinating. Like, what kind of fabric are we using? What kind of right. co what color is it? What's the lighting look like? And all that business. But like, basically, who's who are the people who are determining the image changes depending on how close the camera is? Right, right. That's it's interesting. Like, That's so like fascinating. I've been writing about film. If you count college, I've been writing about film for three decades, and I never thought of it that way. Right. The criticism that we always are, are comfortable with, it seems like, is is so leaning towards auteur criticism, you know? So when you talk about the author, the person, the, the director, whether he or she is a tyrant or not, you always think, oh, it's he, he or she meant that. You know, they're the ones that, that made that happen. But to hear him talk that way, is it's fascinating. Well, I think it's true to a certain degree in the sense that a director, a really, a really involved, strong director, does choose their collaborators and they have these meetings where they decide on things like what are the dominant colors for this right. part of the movie, things like that. But, but yeah, definitely there are, there are people who um, contribute a lot. And in fact, you know, one area that's of particular interest to me is music. And um, I, have, I have contended for quite a long time that J J J uh, uh, John Williams should be considered uh, almost a co-director of the films of Steven Spielberg and, and George Lucas. And, and when uh, John Williams did not score Bridge of Spies, Bridge of Spies sounded very, very different. Mm -hmm. It felt different. And it was because John Williams was not the musical voice of the movie. And, and a lot of, I think a lot of that sweetness and, sentimentality that Spielberg is accused of is supplied by John Williams's music. And if you took John Williams out of the equation, people might not feel that way. And, and, uh, another music, <clears throat> which I'm only kind of obsessed with right now because I'm going through a phase where I'm revisiting all the paranoid thrillers. There's this guy named Michael small who scored a lot of the great paranoid thrillers of the seventies, oh. uh, including all these Alan Pakula films. Oh, like I all love it. I, can I say, I'm sorry to interrupt you, Matt, yeah. but this is my favorite uh, phase, th those paranoid thrillers of the 70s. Okay. I can't wait to talk to you about that. Oh, they're fantastic. They're fantastic. And, and, uh, but Michael Small, like I realized I was, go I was looking through Michael Small's credits and I was like, wow, he scored, you know, these Alan Pecula films, including The Parallax View, which right. is one of my favorite movies of all time. But he also did Marathon Man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and there's this particular kind of sound that I think only Michael Small really produced. I think he's like one of the most distinctive film score artists. Well, he's right up there with like, you know, Philip Glass or right. Bernard Harriman or something where you hear like four seconds of one of their scores. And you're like, that's Bernard Harriman. Yeah. Or, or, yeah. or Howard Shore. Or Howard Shore. Shore. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Where you hear them and like, yeah, music is a whole other thing. But anyway, my point is um, I think you can make an argument for John Williams as an auteur. And I think you can make a, a an argument for you know Edith Head right. as as an auteur. Like there's a lot of people like costume designers, composers, production designers like Ken Adam. Right. You know. Oh, absolutely. Like With the, the James, James Bond stuff. Oh yeah. The original and the original Star Wars. Like oh. when I found out that like 
Oh, the deaths. Well, no wonder. Like when I saw Dr. Strangelove, I was like, wow, some of those sets look like something out of Star Wars. And then I did his credits. I was like, oh, well, there you go. <laughs> exactly. Oh, I my should God. just add that we did. I, I did interview uh, the composer of the music for The Devil's Backbone, Javier Navarrete. And just preparing to do that interview was kind of exciting because I listened and listened to the score isolated from the film. And then I watched the film again to see how those pieces worked with the scenes. And it was really funny. I had this really long, elaborate series of questions for him because I was really excited to talk about how music worked in the context of the film. Right. And, and the conversation kind of, as in any collaborative process, took a totally different tack. I mean, Javier Navarrete wanted to talk about one specific story about the making of the score and what was going on with him at the time and what he was thinking of. Mm -hmm. And so we went in that direction and that's actually one of my favorites of the interviews we did because that's was, actually my favorite of all of your interviews for the book yeah it's good right yeah it's great yeah i liked how it turned out because he he knew what he wanted to say right. and we were just like well let's let's go there and it was i i like that one yeah i was i was gonna say the uh um the the whole thing about the uh the music uh, that uh, i was surprised by was guillermo told me you know, he's known, he's a very hands-on director. He's like a like a, uh, a Martin Scorsese or a Wes Anderson or somebody like that, where, you know, people will come up to him on the set with like a swatch of fabric and he'll say, no, 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 uh, bring me the color, bring me the book of colors and he'll go through and he'll find like a very, very, very subtly different shade of mustard mm -hmm. yellow and go like let's use this one instead because of the type of lighting and the film stock and stuff like that's the level of micromanaging i don't mean to say he he won't let other people do their jobs it's just that look like, he has an opinion on everything and it's going to be an informed opinion right and the only area where that's not true is music uh, right, right that's right. the only area where that's not true and i was that surprised me and he said no you know he 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 worries about every other aspect of the film, but the music he leaves up to the composer. Right. And he said he might suggest a theme. He might hum like a little melody or something. It's like, can you do anything with that? Right. But that's that's as far as it goes. And he said like he basically leaves a composer alone, and then they and then when they uh, play their first rough version of the score, that's the first time he hears it. Am I wrong? Because it feels like it's kind of typical that a lot of you know visual artists or, or directors that are, are so focused on that part of their job um, kind of have that same sort of relationship with their composer, whether it's Ridley Scott or like you said, Steven Spielberg, that they they have a an understanding of, of the feeling, but necessarily they might not be musicians. So they don't, you know, they let that person kind of create their own art. It depends, yeah, but you know, like of course, people like Mike Figgis or John Carpenter are musicians, sure. so they're so they're they're heavily advising, or in some cases, actually doing the score themselves. But Spielberg is actually quite involved with the scores. Mm -hmm. In fact, uh, one of my favorite anecdotes about uh, that is uh, the making of Close Encounters. Mm -hmm. They got that famous da 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 right. the five theme. Uh, Spielberg and Williams had originally talked about it being seven notes, and John Williams spent all of this time trying out different combinations of seven notes. And he said, Stephen, you know, I don't know. Uh, I, none of this is really working for me. I wonder if the problem is that there's too many notes. And 
said, well, I don't know, why don't we try five? I can't remember who suggested it, if it was Spielberg or Williams suggested five. But it, what it ultimately came down to was Spielberg going over to John, like John Williams playing a bunch right. of combinations for him and Spielberg going, no, none of those work. And he's like, why don't you just come over to my house and we'll play five com- combinations of five notes on the piano until you hear one you like. Right. So that's what they ended up doing. And it was like John Williams sitting there at the piano playing combinations of five notes and Spielberg going, no, 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 no. And finally, da, 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 da. And he's like, that's the one. Right. The one that clicks. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, it's great. But, you know, but that's the, but also, you know, um, Wes Anderson's quite uh, involved with the scoring of his films. And in fact, he. You know, he sort of pre-directs his films through these little animatics. Right. And so he can give them to uh, Alexander Desplat or uh, Mark Mothersbar, whoever's doing his scores. And they have a, quite a long time to work on the score mm-hmm. because, you know, you know that the length of the film, even the length of the shots is probably more or less set from the beginning. Sure. And, and, uh, and, and they will, in that case, like they'll be emailing Wes – little rough versions of the score for a particular scene with the animatic as the visual mm-hmm. and Wes will watch it and go like, okay, can you lose the drums in this part? Or can you bring in, you know, he's actually a very knowledgeable guy musically. Right. You, know, you can say like, instead of a trumpet, can you try a flugelhorn? That's the <laughs> wow that he's got. Yeah. Well, so, so about the book itself, the, the devil's backbone, did, uh, Guillermo del Toro see any of this? Does he, did he give you any feedback on it? Yeah, he, he had some, he, he had some reactions to it. Uh, but you know, he's making a movie at the time, right? He was making a movie at the time. So like he, he couldn't really like, I'm kind of, I don't know if I should be annoyed or grateful that he wasn't <laughs> able to offer a lot of opinions on the book. But the book is mostly like it's inside editions and me and Simon. Right. Um, but definitely Guillermo, I will say that he came to, he was great to work with. And he, um, he, I would imagine he's probably great to have as a producer if you're a director. I believe it, yeah. Because we had a particular way that we wanted to do this book, and Guillermo was like, "Well, if that's the way you want to do the book, that's the way you should do it." Right. right. And and he and he fought for it. And like, if there was any sort of arguments about what to do, he would usually side with us, unless it was just impossible to do what we wanted. Right. Um, but yeah, it was great. He was really great every step of the way, and he, uh, including like uh, something that they don't normally do in their other books is like extensive cross comparisons of different kinds of films. Which is something I'm, I'm kind of known for doing that, right, and right. Uh, and Guillermo thought that was a good idea, and so we did that. Do you feel like some people, and maybe even the publisher, kind of sway away from it because they they don't want to, you know, draw comparisons? They don't want to be, you know, saying that this this thing is like something else. I don't know. I think it has more to do with concern about um, intellectual property and having to pay for things. Gotcha. And and uh, the fair use. Uh, guidelines for using copyrighted material are actually pretty a pretty good um insulation against those sorts of charges right i've done one two three four uh coming up on yeah i can't remember i guess seven or eight now by this point film books and a lot of them have uh copyrighted material that we didn't clear right we didn't clear we just use them and the reason we just put them in the book is because we knew it's if it's a work of criticism, education, mm-hmm. 
an editorial um, satire or parody, uh, th- those are the five fair use um, protections. Right. And uh, most of most of the books I'm involved with cover at least two, sometimes three of those. That's awesome. Yeah. So so we didn't, you know, we didn't, uh, and we've never had anybody. Uh, I've never been sued by anybody. I've never even had a, a letter from a lawyer. So I guess, well, I guess, <laughs> guess my sense of it. yeah. So I guess my sense of it, and you know, the video essays also, like, you know, I've had things taken down from YouTube, but they always go back up. Right. So you know, always, except for one that I did on. Mr. Spock, the character of Mr. Spock, which I found out was just taken down, those bastards. <laughs> For yeah, what? Just, For what specifically? Oh, just, you know, Viacom. It's like, usually oh, no God. humans are involved in this. Right. Like, there's a bot who detects a digital watermark in a piece of footage, and they send an email to right. YouTube, which automatically issues a, t- which <laughs> automatically takes a thing down. It's like, it's basically the Borg our intellectual property you know <laughs> you cannot use yeah, yeah and it's like you know and, I, and i've actually at the beginning i didn't understand that like when i first started doing video essays about 10 years ago i didn't understand that i was all angry i was picturing like some <laughs> some some jerk with horn rim glasses and a little sweater vest like watching my video and, th- <laughs> and going like i think that's in violation <laughs> but it's actually yeah but it's, you know it's like you know, there's no people doing any of right, this. Right. You know? It's all algorithms now. Yeah. It would be great if the robot sounded like that. He's the Edward G. Robinson. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm going to issue a takedown notice. She. Get rid of these, that. <laughs> if you had any questions, these are the writers of the new Guillermo del Toro book, <laughs> <laughs> The Devil's Backbone. We're doing our best to appear dignified. That's about enough out of you. <laughs> Del Toro is is really one of my my favorite uh, directors, and he's such a a unique artist. And I, I can't wait to to read the book, guys. I'm I'm really looking forward to it. Um, it comes out on November 28th, correct? Yes. Although I've been told that it's uh, some stores are already selling it. I hope wow. that's true. Wow. Get out there, check them out. Um, do do any plugs? Let the people know where they can find you. Uh, what what you got uh, coming up? I know that you guys said that you were uh, working on new projects together. That's exciting. Yeah, we're gonna do a book about the history of graphic violence uh, in movies, and uh, that's. Uh, I'm not sure what the timeline is for that yet. I got to finish the Sopranos book yet uh, first, but uh, that's what we're doing together and individually. I know Simon's working on a bunch of things, and so am I. Um. Yeah, I'm trying to get off the ground a couple projects, including a book about the oral history of John Carpenter's films. Um, but uh, that's in very early stages, so we'll see. Um, I'm mainly focusing now on uh, just reviewing and uh, reviewing films and interviewing uh, filmmakers for RogerEbert.com, Village Voice, a um, lot of uh, outlets like that. Fantastic. <laughs> I'm I'm such a fan of your guys' output. Seriously, I, I I love where your your mind is at and where you kind of want to go uh, with these books and and the criticism. So um, you know, keep up the good work. I, I love it. I really love it. Thank you very much. So we'll talk again soon. Have a good weekend. Okay, you. you too. Take care. Okay, see you guys. Bye. Thank you.